2: Thank you so much for joining us for another very special episode of Leaving Hillsong. It's so great to have so many people a part of this conversation. You know when we were kids in Australia in the 70s there was a show called Romper Room and Miss Helena used to look through her magic mirror and she would see Mel and she would see Russell and she would see Nicole of course but didn't see a lot of Tanyas, but the point is that's what it's like when I look at the stats and I go, Wow, there's Georgia and there's California and New York and France and oh wow, Brazil. So so it's just so exciting to have this really big conversation and thank you so much for being a part of it. It's interesting by the way, because only fifty percent of listeners are actually in Australia and the rest are everywhere else cannot seem to get the Midwest of the USA to take an interest in us and Vermont. But apart from that, we're up to about, I don't know, forty states. Please keep sending messages and feedback. This is you know, it's just so important to what we're doing here to hear back from you. And it's been a really busy time with people messaging and wanting to share information. And so if if that's you, please feel free to message, reach out whatever platform you use, come in and say hi. There's a lot going on, as you can imagine, and you'll feel like a courtroom witness by the end of today. So so if you need to get your snacks ready, do it now because there won't be any time for a break. And that's because today Nathan Zampronio is talking to us about his experience in an offshoot Hillsong Church in a place called Hawkesbury, which was about half an hour away from the original Hills Christian Life Centre, Nathan spent his teens and 20s there, and it had quite a profound effect on his life, as you'll hear. Nathan went on to become an English teacher and spent over 20 years working in schools. He's also a local counsellor in his region, and these are the things he has to tell us. Nathan, let's start a little bit with how you came to be in an AOG church.
3: That's a very good question. Look, you needed a social outlet. And it was as simple as a friend, a good friend, who said, well, there's this youth group that I go to on a Friday night. It's fun. We might go to the roller skateel, or we might, you know, go to a pool party, or there's a bit of evangelism, but, you know, it's all, it's all good fun. And that was it. I was drawn in, in 1988. And I was drawn into this environment where I made lifelong friends, where I had something to do on a Friday night, and it was at a church. But these were, these were nice people. And, you know, after some social activity, we'd be sat down and we'd be given a, a homily. We were proselytized. And this was so new to me because I hadn't grown up in a religious family. Okay. I, I wouldn't call it an irreligious family. It's just that belief in God wasn't important. There was plenty of other stuff to get on with than tugging the forelock to, to, to God. And I'm fairly sceptical by nature. I'm wired with a scientific mind. I like to ask questions and I regarded it with aggrieved bemusement. And the first lesson is this, you get drawn in by, you know, by, by a welcoming attitude and any, any religion, and for that matter, any cult will do precisely the same thing and show a smiling face. But eventually you get tied down as a thousand tiny threads and you end up being captive to it. And in many cases being totally unaware of your own captivity So I was proselytized and, you know, from the age of 15 to the age of 16 or 17, I thought, well, this is a social thing. Who cares about the religious aspect? Okay. Until eventually I was convicted by the message that I was receiving and I became a sincere convert. And it was always God's little joke that, you know, of all the churches that I could be proselytized into, that I'd be proselytized into the Pentecostal church. Why is that? Because I have a more Anglican sensibility, Mm -hmm. you might say, and I value tradition. And here was a contemporary church that had drum kits and electric guitars and was very relevant Mm. to the modern culture and didn't seem at all worried about, you know, the, the trappings of tradition. The church was in a converted squash court. There was no crucifix on the wall anywhere. That the preaching was as much motivational psychobabble as it was hard theology and I I became a very sincere convert and it's easy when you're young to be caught up in the energy of that Mm. and and indeed the, the romance of that because here were people who were saying you're special you're loved by the author of the universe and you have a special destiny and we were so full of energy I remember leaving youth group on a Friday night and my friend who was just a year or so older so he had his peas and he had a beat-up old green Kingswood. We just had this surplus of energy that we had to run off. So we'd take turns driving the car along a lonely road in the burbs, and the other person would run beside the car as fast as they could. And then we would get on a bus, and we would go down to the State Sports Centre at Homebush or the uh, the Hills uh, Convention Centre, now gone, and we'd go to a Youth Alive concert, or we'd go to the Naskin, you know, Hillsong conferences. And being from the Burbs, you see, I grew up in a satellite church to Hillsong. It was in the same denomination. Okay. The Assemblies of God then became the Australian Christian Churches. But we were deeply affiliated with Hillsong.
2: So was it one of Frank's plants?
3: I don't know that it was. So, It felt a very special kinship. And the minister of our church was a lieutenant of brian houston he was on the state executive he was on the national executive so we were in many senses a hillsong offshoot and we took their dna and we emulated them and here's the thing when we went down windsor road to go and visit like we used to go to armed and dangerous on the grounds of castle hill showground in a big circus tent and we would see all of the a-list speakers and i was captivated because here were All the beautiful people, all of the people that dressed better than me, who had better teeth than me, who were...
2: What's Armed and Dangerous?
3: So, Armed and Dangerous was an annual youth camp that was run by Youth Alive, and Youth Alive, in turn, was the the youth offshoot of Hillsong Church. So, we would go to Youth Alive rallies, we'd go to this Armed and Dangerous camp, and we'd go to Hillsong, even before it became Hillsong, because the conferences were called Hillsong even Mm. before the church was called Hillsong and to see all of these beautiful people being very spiritual and very trendy for an ordinary boy from the burbs it it had this allure to Mm. it and I wanted to be like them and if you bought into that vision what was the highest calling that you could have you could do God's work in your workplace, but really, where it was at was was ministry. Because if God's special blessing was on you, you'd preach. So, I wanted to be a pastor, and I volunteered for my church. And eventually, I found my way onto the staff of my church for a few years. A paid role? Oh, meagerly but mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, I was on the proper okay. staff. Oh, that's
2: a big deal. Back you know, then it too. was a,
3: it was a big deal. And I look back and I think of all of the opportunities for academic advancement or career advancement that I gave up because I was in the service of that vision. I would defy anybody to think of me in that season of my life as being anything other than sincere in my conversion and devoted to the cause. There was nothing false or forced about that. And it manifested in our personal lives as well, because I had a cohort that I was growing up with, and we were all sown into that church and its vision as well. All of these young people that were eager to do the right thing. So we were told that you couldn't have sex before marriage Mm. and that you had to live a godly life. Mm. And, you know, being the pure young innocent boy that I was, I, I took that to heart. I did the right thing. I went to my marriage bed as a virgin.
2: As a lot of people have.
3: Yeah, but here's the thing. All of those other young people that were kind of walking the same road as me were less than diligent in that. To put it bluntly, they were going at it like rabbits. Wow you know not not that i begrudge that now i look back and i think of all of the fun that i could or, or should have been having to have a healthy sex life which i didn't because i was doing the right thing yeah and in the same way you know when a young couple got pregnant and and the parent who was known for marriage and family ministry and doing the right thing the the young girl in that case got an abortion and it was it was contrary to the teaching so What I was seeing and what these people were, were at odds. And I didn't realise this until years later. And I can only ache for not only the lost opportunities, but the hurt that were caused to people who didn't fit, who weren't the beautiful people, who were struggling with their sexuality and who felt judged. And no sooner had they come into our orbit as that they left. And all of the hurt that was caused to people who were in, in a process of becoming and that this was not this was not a healthy place for them to be. It's the sense of it's the sense of judgment that these people came under that irks me. See, there was a thing that was going through the church at this time, and I'm talking about the you know, the mid nineties.
2: Okay.
3: Mid to late nineties. It was called a theophostic ministry, or an Isaiah sixty one ministry. And it was akin to the you know, the conversion ministries that we were discussing. The way it worked is that you would sit down with a, a, a trusted pastor and you had to talk about every concealed sin in your life. Oh. You know, to to be cured of whatever spiritual blockage that you had, you had to be so vulnerable as that you had to reveal every painful secret that you've ever had and that it would be uh, written down by this minister so that you could then break the demonic spirit that was over you, and that would be your pathway to greater spiritual growth. My wife went through this process. People that had any kind of issue, whether it was substance abuse or an eating disorder or a problem with their mental health or depression, it would routinely be diagnosed as a spiritual blockage that had to be unlocked. Perhaps it had a, a, you know, a satanic character in the sense that it was an attack of the enemy. Mm -hmm. So you had to be vulnerable enough to expose to another human being, who, of course, would never use that against you. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, once something is out, it's out. And that you would be able to unlock that spiritual blockage and then grow through that. And, again, looking back, it seems to me to be the most awful abuse of a person's trust at a point of vulnerability, I might add.
2: And it sounds so much like auditing in Scientology, doesn't it?
3: it? It does. If you wanted to be charitable, you'd never say that it was, it was used to have a, a dossier or a dirt file on somebody. But the thing is, you know, if you were going to advance in ministry, if you were going to go from the backing vocalists to a lead vocalist position in the band, or if you were going to be taken from running a cell group to being able to preach on the stage... Uh, your personal conduct was subjected to precisely that scrutiny. You, You can't imagine that that's not going to be talked about. And if that was true then, I'm quite sure that that's true now.
2: So I'm wondering how much of an impact do you think those processes had on your marriage, as well as that purity culture stuff you were talking before about?
3: If there is a broad theme, it's this. Often people find themselves at a difficult pass in their life. It's a time of crisis or they're suffering from some kind of ill health. It might be depression, it might be anxiety, it might be something else. And there's good help and there's bad help. And the distinction between good help and bad help isn't even in the intent with which it's supplied. So if you need psychiatric intervention or counselling, go to a professional Mm counsellor. If you go to a pastor who's well-intended but is out of their depth... They can actually cause much more harm than you could ever imagine. Mm. That's what happened in our situation where my partner went to be counselled by pastors, whereas what was really needed was some fairly high-level psychological or psychiatric yeah. or medical intervention. And it didn't happen. And it ruined our family. Oh. It blew our family apart. This isn't a, a Hillsong connection, but it is a Christian connection. I mean... My partner fell into company, Christians, who nevertheless thought that the the best approach to dealing with her mental illness was to conduct exorcisms upon oh. her and to cast out her demons. Ancient history for me now. But it just goes to show how Christian ministry is no substitute for adequate and competent counselling, psychiatric and psychological care.
2: And these practices are going on everywhere and it's such concern with all of the charities and the outreaches to vulnerable people that these, these practices are still going on. And so, what, you know, you, you talk about the devotion, but in terms of actual time that you were putting into this place, what are we looking at?
3: When I was young and had a, a surplus of time, I remember regularly that, you know, you would go... I mean, our church was growing and we had a modest venue, which meant that we went from two services a day to at the peak, we had four services a day. There'd be like a a seven thirty service, uh, you know, a, a nine thirty service, uh, a, like a five thirty service, and a seven fifteen service. Mm. Then there'd be a home fellowship group on a Tuesday night. Then, if you were involved in the creative ministries, it would be rehearsal on a Wednesday night, and then it would be youth group on a Friday night.
2: And you were doing all of those uh,
3: at various times. I was doing some combination of all of those. And the thing is, you know, when you were devoted to the cause, there was no limit to how much, because, you know, going to more was more brandy points, was more, was more spiritual d- devotion. And, you know, like it, it could become your entire social world. I, I mean, I frequently describe Hillsong and Hillsong like churches as being a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm. And for anybody that's listening that's kind of still in that milieu, what I like to say is most of the people that attend these Fellowships are terribly well motivated. They're kind people that want to do good in their community, that want to lead upright lives, that want to help their fellow man, but it is a mile wide and it is an inch deep. The fact that the leaders on the top can be so nakedly abusive Mm. of people's good intentions. If you're a young person and you think that the pathway for you is to go to the Bible college, you want to get a, a theological qualification, you want to preach. So why are you manning the car park for Brian's church yeah. for most of your Sunday? Why are you running errands for your pastor? Why why are you driving the pastor's car because he picked it up under some taxation regime where he could get a brand new car every six months. And so long as it had more than 40,000 Ks on the clock, he could then turn it over for a profit and then get a new brand new car. So what that meant is that you lent that car out to every eighteen-year-old kid in the church, <laughs> to, you know, to run up the miles, <laughs> so that so that you could get a new car in another six months. And the thing is, you know, this culture is endemic in Hillsong. It, it you know, it, what's emulated is then repeated. So when we see of all of those Hillsong pastors that have fallen from grace, uh, it, it's because that culture is emulated from the very top. If you have this spirit of touch, not the Lord's anointed. Mm. These are special people who have a special blessing and calling on their life. Mm-hmm. They're apostles in the faith. They have a more direct line to God than you do. They get the velvet rope. They get the separate entrance. They get the VIP green.
1: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
3: Room with the lovely Mm. fruit platter. They don't have to associate with the congregation. Mm. Is it any wonder that the whole structure is so rampantly corrupt When that's what's emulated. And these people are, in a sense, captive to the machine that they've created. They've bought into that mystique, and it's difficult for them to get off that pedestal now. It's difficult for them to be ordinary, fallible human beings now because they've set themselves up in a way that says, look, I I communicate with God and I can tell you how you should live your life because. I'm doing a better job than everyone else. So, if there's any kink in that armour, suddenly you're not being real, you're not being authentic. The most common phrase that arose, you know, when I was on my way out the door was, I've just realised, in this place, it's not okay to not be okay.
2: So, as you were saying, you know, you're going to this place, but you're also surrounded by really nice people.
3: That's absolutely right. And I made lifelong friends, and I still have many lifelong friends that I acquired you know, in my years attending that fellowship and its youth group. Group. People that I care for very deeply and who will be my friends uh, for the rest of my Mm. life. But for many of us who left the church, some of us left with a vengeance. When we talk among ourselves and we we wonder why we got to that point of leaving, most often it's because we grew up. It's because we, you know, we, we know we could no longer give our assent to that worldview in the same way that we no longer give our ascent to believing in the tooth fairy. Yeah. We were exposed to a greater diversity of being. And and for people that are listening who, who still have their faith, it, it could simply be a matter of being exposed to different ways of being a Christian. Mm. I mean, I worked for nearly 20 years in private Christian schools. And that was the eye opener for me. I was in a school where it was non-denominational, and there were Anglicans and Baptists and Presbyterians and Penties, and I realized that there were other ways of being Christian mm. that were just as authentic, mm. and Pentecostalism is, is a particularly insular church. You, you, you tend to fall for the conceit that it's the only genuine way. We were the ones that were proselytizing. We were the ones that were growing the faith. But all you've got to do is look at the statistics and find out that that's not true. Pentecostalism has flatlined between the 2011 and the 2016 census. It represents 1.1% of the population. Out out my way, where I take a look at the more local statistics, uh, the Pentecostal churches shrank. Who knows what the new census that was completed Mm. recently will say about the rise of, of people who... Eschew any denominational affiliation or any religion whatsoever. So, for a religion that was predicated on growth, where growth was the marker of God's approval. Yes. If yes. you aren't growing, then you're open to the question: Well, you know, what spiritual blockage are you having? What what secret sin are you concealing? Is that you're not moving on in ministry? That you you can't grow individually or grow as a congregation? I spoke recently with a minister of a church who was under such... And this was a, a Hillsong-affiliated church who, nearly 15 years ago, was under such an oppressive pressure for growth, it drove him nearly to suicide. Oh. And when he burned out, he burned out bad. And then, like any good-hearted person, tried to transform his experience uh, to something positive and now works in suicide prevention oh, and wonderful. mental health. Okay. And i I understand... That pressure for growth.
2: It sounds enormous and it sounds never-ending. Yeah. Uh, we talk a lot about misogyny in the church. There's not as much discussed about the pressure on the men as well to be these superhero guys wearing a cape. And
3: I know. And what do you do when your employment, your mortgage, your vehicle, is is, is closely linked to your ability to get on a stage every Sunday and preach? And you've just quietly, in the meantime, lost your faith.
2: I've read reports that up to a third of pastors in the US are actually atheists
3: just trapped. Uh, Quite quite possibly, and I feel very deeply for them. And, Mm. you know, my challenge is, you know, if you're in a church and you have doubts, then understand the kind of sunk cost trap that you're in. Because if your social circle or indeed your vocation or your sense of civic purpose or, or outreach is linked to a particular fellowship... And yet quietly you've been harboring those doubts, then it's difficult to lift yourself out of that and to address these fundamental questions honestly. And this is where my this is where my academic interest comes in. I have a master's degree in teaching, I have a interest in critical thinking and ethics. I'm a trained ethicist. I was a teacher and I worked in schools, Christian schools for for nearly twenty years. And I found myself looking at my own journey and my own inability to confront these questions honestly, because when you're in that milieu, how can you you ask that and and answer that question honestly? And it was only after I'd left that I realised I was giving my tacit assent and my money and my time to something that was bunk and that was being run by people whose motives were not entirely pure, who were quite happy to take the adulation and the obedience Uh, But who were plastic. And if you're in a plastic church being preached to by plastic pastors, eventually the plastic shows. Okay.
2: Hmm. As you said, you kind of grow up. You were at a church. It wasn't a Hillsong one, but the pastors on all the executives of the AOG during the time. What years are we talking about? All right, then.
3: So so in the 80s and and 90s, it was the Assemblies of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Then there was this idea that it would be the Australian Christian Churches, which was was, was a label that put a lot of noses out of joint because it came with the association of, well, we represent all Australian Christians. Right. And there were other denominations who said, well, you don't necessarily speak for us. In fact, we think you're a bit weird. And it's curious to me that... The Australian Christian churches had nests like Russian dolls. Inside that, there was Hillsong, and Hillsong was the gorilla elephant in the room. And Brian Houston, of course, became the national president of the Australian Christian churches. So these terms are kind of interchangeable. The AOG morphed into the ACC. Hillsong was the biggest network of churches under that banner and they had national profile. But isn't it interesting that now that Hillsong says that it's outgrown the Australian Christian churches, it's left the very denomination that it purported to help found. Why? Because they don't want that oversight. They only want to be accountable to themselves and to have a board that are not Hillsong appointed people, of course, is very uncomfortable for them. So they've they've left that now, the church that we were at was uh, a, an ACC church. We looked to Hillsong. Uh, our minister was high up in the national leadership of that denomination, was Brian Houston's lieutenant. So in 1999, a funny thing happened. You see, we knew that you know Brian Houston was our national leader. And then suddenly, and of course, we, we would receive pastors as visiting pastors all the time, and, you, you, you know, the drill, you know, they'd come, they'd give a motivational topic, they'd have their merch table, they'd have a tape series or a CD or a book. And, you know, we'd give them a love offering and quarter them every honour. And then suddenly, Frank Houston was parked at our church. And he wasn't just visiting. He'd come Sunday after Sunday. It was like, oh, he's here to stay. But hang on, isn't he the minister of a very large fellowship at Waterloo, So there was no official announcement or... No, there wasn't. Please, can we welcome... Them? We were told... And keep in mind, I knew more about this than most. I was on the staff of the church okay. at this time. So what we were told was, Frank Houston is a towering super apostle of our movement. Treat him like royalty. He is a founding pastor of our church movement in Australia. He is the father of Brian Houston, a very famous and powerful man, and he should be accorded every honour. He's getting on now. If you want to know why he's with us now, look, he's in kind of semi-retirement now. And he likes being with us. And, you and when know, you say
2: they, who w- we were told. Well, it was,
3: it was you know, the, the, the leadership of the church, the, the, the fellowship were, were told. Because there had to be an explanation as to why this pastor of another church was suddenly parked with us. And, of course, Frank, in retirement, preached with us. Okay. Well, I mean, the the, the twist that you know, Frank at that point had been exposed, disgraced and defrocked as a minister because his pedophilia had become exposed. But he preached with us.
2: Hang on, Brian says he never preached again. Indeed.
3: I would suggest that Brian Houston perjured himself before the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse when he said, and I quote, towards the end of his life, I wasn't surprised by anything Frank might have said, because by that stage, he wasn't very lucid. And he said that his father was incoherent, you know, prior to his death in 2004 and was very given over to dementia. How curious that there is date stamped audio of Frank preaching only six months before his death in 2004, where he was preaching. And I might add rather creepily picking out all of the handsome young boys. In the congregation for special praise,
2: and, and we'll put that audio up on the Facebook page or YouTube. Or we'll organise uh, that and, and put some uh, links.
3: Absolutely, it, it immediately struck me as a bald-faced lie. So, who do
2: you think was deceiving who? Did your leadership know?
3: I'm I'm quite confident that our leadership knew why Frank Houston had been moved on from his leadership position to a, you know in a large church fellowship, a Hillsong fellowship at Waterloo. And then parked with us, and then after a period of time, moved on to another church. But I, I can say he was lucid. Yes, I can say that he was preaching. And when Brian says that he never preached again, is that that was a lie?
2: So when would have been the last time before he died that you well, saw him? Well, you know, if he was if he was disgraced in, if
3: he was disgraced in 1999, it was sometime after then sometime between 1999 and the early 2000s. And then he was moved on from our church right? and then found a home somewhere else. And, and I always thought it was odd.
2: Did he have a minder or somebody with him? Was he given free access to hug your grandchildren or how did that work? He, he,
3: he wasn't particularly shepherded, but he was, given, he was given the VIP treatment in the sense that, you know, he, he wasn't a regular congregant. He was an honoured visitor. Okay. And beyond that, with the affliction of time, it's difficult for me to say more, but I can say hand on heart that he did preach Mm
0: -hmm. with us
3: and that that means that whatever trouble legally Brian Houston is in now, maybe the police should consider adding a charge of perjury.
2: Well, there's a lot of statements in those transcripts that people can see are questionable. One of the Royal Commission documents that the AOG's own special meeting talks about a restoration process which strikes me that they had no intention of removing him permanently it was a two year process that he was going to be put under
3: that that's right and of course by not taking it immediately to the police which was a requirement of the child protection act at you, the time uh, uh, even at the time that that particular law had been uh, enforced in 1998 and these events happened in 1999 so it was a clear breach of the law in my opinion I'm not a lawyer and by not taking it to the police there could have been other victims there could have been inquiries that could have been taken in hand there could have been other victims who could have come forward and we know that when frank confessed it was to an allegedly limited extent about one person one event uh you know in the 1970s but I think the evidence shows that there was more. And by not taking it to the police, justice was not done. Well, if you're telling me
2: that he wasn't particularly supervised and then he had, what, about five years' worth of access to churches and we don't know what happened in
3: those five years. Well, we'll put it this way. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he was at any risk of committing other crimes against children. He was an elderly man at that point but sent him in wheelchairs well i mean m- maybe but my point is to have been so deceptive towards the congregation to lord this man mm. as a super oh. apostle of our faith and to be given every honor in retirement was wrong and for the various congregations including brian's own congregation to be given a a rinsed out version of this story that was so vague as that people were leaving that explanation thinking that perhaps it was some kind of financial irregularity or that it was just some minor lapse. And it wasn't. It was pedophilia.
2: Brian Houston says he was upfront with his church from the beginning.
3: Well, I don't believe that the evidence shows that that's the case at all. And again, I point to the culture of the organisation, the top down. Uh, authoritarian style of the church, it makes obvious sense that when you can mitigate, you will mitigate. When ministers in my own church had affairs, the ones that could be covered up were covered up. The ones that couldn't be covered up had to be addressed. And that was the way it went. Well, you know, I mean, if there was an ability to mitigate the public spread of that information then it was regularly the case that it was. How many conversations as Brian Houston, as the major national denominational leader, he would have been in a position on many, many dozens of occasions where he's had to be in the unpleasant situation of sitting a pastor down who's been exposed to some whiff of scandal or an affair or something like that and to say, look, mate, it's like this. It's a really bad look. I have no doubt you may be proven innocent, but we can't have you in ministry no. between now and then. There's this a proper process. And uh, until then, you're stood down, possibly stood down without pay. I wonder whether Brian Houston is going to have the same standard applied to his own conduct, whether he will be stood down by his board, whether he will recuse himself from paid ministry between now and the resolution of the court matter. And so I could list... Half a dozen without trying, and you know it.
2: Or any other footballer. I mean, if the NRL can do it. Yeah. Surely a church can do it. Gosh, Nathan, those are some big words you use today. And you might think that that's all Nathan's witness that would be of great interest to you. But in fact, the next episode of Leaving Hillsong, which I'll try and get out as soon as possible in the next day or two, holds further crucial information on the history of politics in Australia and the effect of a political party that was supposed to have nothing to do with Hillsong. So make sure you like, follow, subscribe, whatever it is, and show people that you're really interested in what happens when people end up leaving Hillsong. Make sure you get the notifications because I just put out episodes every Sunday and then where I can extras after that. So thank you, Nathan. I think the importance of that stuff speaks for itself and we'll talk very soon. Bye. You have no choices anymore because you belong to God. God owns you completely. You have no more rights. And so that
3: vote that you get isn't a vote that's given to you by the government. It's not given to you by democracy. It's given to you by God to serve God with. I don't want you to be attra- attracting God's anger. Right across our nation, suddenly a party has sprung up. It's the Family First Party.